Good to see you. I'm Dave, one of the student ministers here at Snack, and it's great to be with you at this time. Now, you don't know this about me, because uh, I'm a pretty humble bloke. You probably do know that about me. Uh, you're not supposed to laugh at that point, but that's okay. Um, but I come from a proud line of henties. Uh, my mum's mum's a henty. And I don't want to make a big deal about this, but we're kind of a big deal. Um, the Henties were the first people to bring sheep into Victoria. I know what you're thinking. How did I not know this about Dave, right? So impressive. Uh, but the Henties, they have some skeletons in their closet. Um, you see, generations ago, they were wealthy because of this, but they blew it all. Don't ask me how it happened. There's all these theories that circulate around our family. None of them good, though. Today, as we work through Genesis 4, we continue to explore where it all began, our shared family of origin. Last week, if you were here, we we saw some of those skeletons in our closet, didn't we? Uh, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, the first people to do it, and they brought sin and death into our world. Well, this week... I will see what life looks like for humanity now that this is the case, now that Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden. It's a heavy passage, especially for a long weekend, because we're going to take a close-up look at sin, and we're going to see how destructive it can be to us. But if we're going to keep living for Jesus, we need to be wise to the ways of sin. So before we dive into the passage, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us these words in Genesis 4. Please make us wise to sin, that we may walk in the way of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's get into our story. So the first thing we see is that given everything we talked about in Genesis 3, life outside of the garden, it seems surprisingly good. Adam's intimate with his wife Eve, and as a result, Cain, the first ever baby, is born into this world. I'll never forget when my daughter Daisy, our firstborn, when she came into the world. In the, Maddie, Maddie was having a rest, so I took her into another room. And in those moments, it was just overwhelming but wonderful. You know, as I came to grips with this, this new life in the world. Imagine being Adam and Eve, the first ever people to experience this. And what's more, it shows us that despite their rebellion... Uh, God is still going to enable them to be his image bearers, to be those people who feel and subdue and rule the earth. Eve recognizes God's hand, and so she says, verse 1, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Later, God blesses them with a second child, Abel, and as these brothers grow up, uh, God gives them dignified work. Verse 2, and then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, and Cain worked the ground. Life outside the garden seems surprisingly good, doesn't it? But all too soon, we see how Adam and Eve's sin play out in the next generation. I've titled this section, The Beast of Sin. Let's pick up the story from verse 3. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. 
Each brother here makes an offering to God um, from their respective trades, Cain from the ground, Abel from his flock. Uh, But there's a problem. End of verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Abel here is offered the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. In other words, he's given God the best of the best. And God approves it. He says, this is good. But why didn't he approve Cain's offering? We're not told. Maybe Cain was holding back on God, you know, giving him his rotten, weak old crops. You know, we just don't know. But whatever the reason is, God doesn't approve Cain's offering, and Cain doesn't take the news well. Verse 5, Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. I think here we're getting a picture of like a five-year-old child who's having an angry sulk. You know when a little child, or maybe a big child, gets mad, and there's this kind of, there's this kind of sulking phase where they just get more and more angry before they don't, they don't just destroy whatever they can get their hands on? I think we're in this, this stewing phase right now. And so out of God's concern for Cain, he draws near to him. Verse 6, he says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? You see, Cain, he's got, he's got an example in his brother of how to please God, doesn't he? He's got the playbook. And God encourages Cain to take this example, follow it, and pursue what's good. But God also warns Cain about the dangers of pursuing what's not pleasing to him. Verse 7, he says, But if you do not do what's right, sin's crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin here, it's personified as a beast that's waiting at Cain's door. If Cain chooses to act on his anger, he welcomes in this destructive beast. Seems like an obvious choice, right? You know, if a monster is at your door, you don't let it in. But sadly, we see that just like his dad, Adam, he welcomes in this beast. And we witness another first for humanity. Verse 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Just like that, the first murder in history summed up in one short sentence. And what's more, it was his younger brother. Just like that, he killed him. He welcomed in the beast, and then the rest of our story, we see that it wreaks havoc. God knows what Cain's done, and he gives Cain an opportunity to come forward. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain just doubles down. He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's guardian? In this response, this short response, we see how sin has taken a grip of Cain's life. Cain not only brazenly lies to his maker, but he disowns his brother. You know, at this point, Cain, he had two parents, he had one brother, and he's saying, he's not my problem. And God says to him, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a, it's a haunting line, isn't it? Abel's blood 
cries to the author of life. And what's it crying? It's crying for justice. For God as the righteous one over all to condemn Cain for what he's done. To take away human life is always a great offence to the author of life. It's why as Christians we can never be okay with things like euthanasia, with abortion. Only God gives life and only he determines if and when it's taken away. And so verse 11, God says, So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you've shed. If you work the ground, it'll never again give you its yield. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Fittingly here, the, um, the ground that's soaking with Abel's blood, it'll no longer produce fruit for Cain. And worst of all, Cain is cast out from God's presence. But even now in this moment, Cain doesn't show any remorse for what he's done. All he can think about is himself. Verse 13, he says, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you're banishing me from the soil, I must hide myself from your presence and become a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's worried here that uh, somebody is going to respond to what he's done and take a vengeance killing on him. And he would have deserved this. But how does God respond? He says, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Now, people have argued and speculated about what this mark is. Uh, My favorite is that it's some kind of guardian dog that just follows Cain wherever he goes. And if somebody comes, the dog just just barks at them and scares them off. Um, We don't know what the mark is, but I think the point's pretty clear. Cain's undeserving here, but God will protect him. He'll protect him from a vengeance killing out of his grace. And so with his, with his protection, verse 16, then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's a, it's a tragic account, isn't it? Life outside the garden, it looks pretty good. But we've seen here that Adam's sin has left a mark on the next generation. As, as, wel- as Cain welcomed this beast into his life, we've seen the fallout. Cain became an unrepentant murderer, cast out from God's presence. For Adam and Eve, they lost their sons, both of them. For Abel, he lost his own life. And what's more, as we step back and see what's happening here in the broader story, we see how sin is hardening and distorting, but not just in this generation, but across generations. This is most clear when we meet Lamech. He pops up at the end of chapter 4, seven generations on in Cain's line. And Lamech is just a real piece of work. Like Cain, he murders another man, this time out of retaliation. But Lamech boasts about it. He says to his wives in verse 24, If Cain's to be avenged seven times over, then Lamech, 77 times. It's It's so wrong, isn't it? In one breath... Lamech, he celebrates what's evil, and he twists what's good. He boasts to his wives about taking another human life. But also, he twists 
God's grace. He thinks, oh, if Cain got, you know, seven times protection for his murder, and that's pretty bad, my murder's not that bad, and I should get 77 times. It's so sad, isn't it? Twisting what's good, hardening people to what's evil. But that's how sin works. And it does it across generations. Have a think about it. What we've seen with Adam and Cain and Lamech, when Adam disobeyed God, he was fearful. He knew he'd done the wrong thing and he fled from God's presence. He tried to hide. Uh, and Cain, even though you see it was pretty perverted, he, he lied to his maker, he disowned his brother, but he still knew what was, that he'd done the wrong thing. He, he still tried to hide it from his maker, didn't he? But what does Lamech do? He just stands there and celebrates what he's done. He boasts about it. And we see this today in so many ways. Take abortion. Previously, people rejected it. They, they recognized there's something wrong about taking another life. But now, it's, it's celebrated. It's a sign of progression. It's a sign of liberation. That's how sin works across generations. I bet this is how you wanted to spend your long weekend. Uh, it's, it's not the most upbeat passage, is it? But it's so important that we wrestle with these words. Because if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus, we need to be wise to the way of sin. We can't walk in the way of Cain. We're going to tease that out in a, in a moment. But before that, uh, last week, Phil poetically and in Inspired Mum, he talked about glimmers of grace in chapter 3. And we see some glimmers today. So let's take a look at that. Uh, we've seen how despite Adam and Eve's disobedience, uh, God enabled humanity to fill and subdue the earth, to be his image bearers. And with Cain, we see how God's warned him. He's given him chances. Even when Cain did something horrible, God, out of his grace, offered him protection. And in verse 25, we see the greatest glimmer of grace in our passage. Let's take a look together. We see after losing both sons, God blessed Eve with another son, Seth. And she describes Seth as another child, literally uh, as another seed. And our ears should pick up at this point, prick up at this point. Uh, we came across this word child last week in chapter 3, verse 15. And it's there that God promised that there would be a child of Eve's who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush the devil. And as we trace Seth's line through the end of chapter 4, we see that it's heading in a slightly different trajectory to Cain's line. At verse 26, Seth has a son, Enosh. And we hear that at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. And as we continue to trace this line thousands of years later, Jesus enters this world, and he is that snake crusher. He's the one who defeats the devil on the cross, who defeats sin and death. And it's on this cross that he sheds his blood for us. Hear how Hebrews describes Jesus' precious blood. In chapter 12, uh, verse 22 to 24, the author shows us a series of these wonderful realities uh, that Christians have in Jesus. And the last on the list, in verse 24, we hear that we have come 
to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Now, why is it that Jesus' sprinkled blood says better, better words than the blood of Abel? Is it because um, Jesus' blood doesn't cry for justice like Abel's? I don't, think, I don't think that's the case. You know, I think Jesus cries as louder than anything else. You know, on the cross, Jesus bears God's righteous punishment for the sins of the world. It can't be that. So what does Jesus' blood cry that's better? It cries better words because it also cries forgiveness. It cries restoration. Because of what Cain did, God cast him out of his presence as a fugitive. But in Christ, he draws us near as his children. We've seen the dark side of humanity today, and in our broken world, there's countless wrongs which cry for justice. But only Jesus' blood cries these words of forgiveness and restoration. It's why, um, as Avril talked about before, it's why we've got the life course coming up. Because we want people to hear these words of mercy for the first time. We want them to repent and, and find their life in Jesus. And if you are somebody here today who, who knows these wonderful words, these sweet words of mercy, remember what Jesus has saved you to. As Paul puts it in Titus 2, verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to cleanse for himself a people, for his own possession, eager to do good works. Who are we? We're Jesus' people. We belong to him. Jesus gave himself for us so that we can walk in his way the way of love. And this sounds obvious, but if we're going to walk in the way of love, we can't walk in the way of Cain. That is, we need to be wise to sin. We need to understand how it can harden us to evil, how it can distort and warp goodness. And instead of inviting any sin into our life, we need to flee from it. We need to know how destructive it is to us, to those around us, to those after us. Now, how are we going to keep Cain from creeping into our community here? I haven't seen any murders lately. Um, good start. I don't, I'm not sure. But there's any number of ways that this could happen. And we're just going to press into one as we finish our time together. So to finish, how... How are you going at responding to godly examples in your life? Remember, God encouraged Cain uh, to pursue what was good, to, to follow his brother's example that he had before him. But Cain couldn't stand how that example of godliness, how it exposed him. And so he got rid of Abel. Are we ever at risk of doing that? It can be an unpleasant experience when areas of our life are exposed. Maybe you're somebody who's got a tendency to share too much, 
and you, you've been in a conversation with someone who's quite careful to use their words to build people up, and it's, it's highlighted that you've got a problem with gossip. Or we've all just uh, done the generosity project in gospel teams. You know, maybe you realize just how generous somebody else was in your group, uh, but it's exposed your own stinginess. These moments of being exposed, they're not pleasant, and they bring out all sorts of emotions, anger, resentment, jealousy, irritation, self-pity, inferiority. And we can be tempted to respond like Cain, maybe not murder, but we find ways that are more accepted to, to keep them at a distance, to get rid of that godly reminder from our life. I think we're pretty good at that as Aussies, actually. Um, maybe we just distance ourselves from that person. You know, if we don't have anything to do with them, if we don't do life with them, then we're not going to have that reminder. Or maybe we, we underplay their example in some kind of way, like, oh, it's a bit, just a bit extreme, a bit over the top, don't you reckon? Maybe, you know, in, in true Aussie style, we, we just knock them down a peg or two. You know, we're looking out for those moments where they might be a bit of a hypocrite, and we take those opportunities just to knock them down. Maybe we cover it up with some Aussie humour so it doesn't look so bad. Can you see how unloving that can be? How that's it's starting to look more like the way of Cain? In these moments, we need to be wise to sin. We need to slow down before we react. Remember, Jesus, he's mercifully saved us to be his people, a community who eagerly seek to do good and encourage each other in this. That's who he's saved us to be. So instead, give thanks for this brother or sister because he's given them to you as a gift to encourage you in love and good deeds. Maybe you can name uh, that that good thing in their life which you're feeling threatened by. Dear God, thank you for Steve and how incredibly generous he is with his money. Thank you for Kathy and how she's so careful to use her words to build people up. Please, Heavenly Father, grow me in this area and help me to be a godly encouragement to others. That's the community God saved us to be, isn't it? It's a community that, he's, that, that we need to keep being a part of while we wait for him to come back, celebrating what's good and seeking it, pursuing it. And what a beautiful community that is. Don't walk in the way of Cain, getting rid of good, godly examples in your life. Instead, keep walking in Jesus' loving ways. Jesus, whose blood cries a better word than Abel's.